1: Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. So one of the things that makes the Fulton County election interference case against Trump and his 18 co-defendants, one of the things that makes it truly unique is that cameras are allowed in the courtroom. And today we saw the very first glimpse of what that will look like, mainly the back of a lot of lawyers heads. Today's hearing was to discuss the severance motions that were filed by Trump's co-defendants and former lawyers, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough. Both of them waived their right to appear. So again, visually speaking, what we got today was a lot of the back of different lawyers' heads. There they are. All are right there. But eventually, all 19 of these defendants, eventually, they could testify or appear in person. And so we could potentially be looking at any one of them, Trump included, on the witness stand, on live TV. But for now, a lot of back of heads. Now, even though the actual hearing today wasn't exactly cinematic, it was still fairly dramatic. This case with 19 defendants all demanding different things is sort of a logistical nightmare. And the logistics really matter here. The logistics are going to play a very meaningful role in determining how and when this case gets to trial, which in turn could be critical in terms of actual accountability. Today, lawyers for Ms. Powell and Mr. Chesbro tried to argue that to meet their defendants' rights to a speedy and fair trial, that they should both be tried next month individually. The judge here, Scott McAfee, did not go for that. So their trial is still set for next month, October 23rd, but Mr. Chesbro and Ms. Powell will be tried together. The judge essentially asserted that because Powell and Chesbro have never met and because they will tell the jury that, the idea that they would have any guilt by association issues is null and void. And Judge McAfee isn't going to waste court resources trying them separately. So at the very least, Mr. Chesbro and Ms. Powell go to trial next month, which is a little over six weeks from now. But that brings us to the much bigger question posed today. Do the 17 other defendants, including a one Donald Trump, do they have to go to trial next month as well? Now, the prosecutors from the district attorney Fonnie Willis's office, they think, yes, they should.
2: Judge, we contend that we must prove the entire conspiracy against each and every one charged. Each and every one charged. So the court in the interest of judicial economy, would have to make the decision as to whether or not the court wants to try the same case 19 times or two. The state's position is that whether we have one trial or 19 trials, the evidence is exactly the same. The number of witnesses is the same. And so many of the arguments that are made on the other side evaporate.
1: Today, the prosecutors told the judge that because they believe they need to prove the entire conspiracy in each and every case, even if a trial is just for one or two defendants, each trial will take roughly the same amount of time. Prosecutors estimated that a case against all 19 co-defendants together would take four months in addition to whatever time jury selection takes. And Fonnie Willis' office anticipates calling upwards of 150 witnesses, 150. Again, D.A. Willis' team says that that four-month-long 150 witness estimate is the same whether the case is brought against all 19 defendants together or whether it's just Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell. Still going to be four months, still going to be 150 witnesses. Now, the judge not only seemed sympathetic to that argument, but actually thought prosecutors were underestimating how long these trials would take. Judge McAfee thought a trial could easily take more like eight months, which, though I have no law degree at all, makes sense to me. I mean, jury selection for this case feels very tricky and 150 witnesses seems like a whole lot of witnesses. So splitting the cases, severing them from one another in the parlance of the court, and having one trial in October for just two defendants and then another further down the line for everyone else, that could be setting up the court for some very lengthy hearings, not to mention staggering inefficiency. But Judge McAfee appeared to be even more skeptical of the alternate option, having all 19 defendants go to trial together on October 23rd. And in particular, he seemed worried about whether it was even logistically possible to get through all of the pre-trial motions for 19 defendants, including, by the way, a former president, and get through all of those in just a month.
2: This is going to be a case with a, a lot of pretrial motions. And again, uh, I don't know how many hearings we're going to need to have to sort through all those, uh, but if we compress our timeline to 40-something days, uh, our ability to even be able to really weigh those and think through these issues, again, it's, it just seems a bit unrealistic to think that we can handle all 19 and 40-something days.
1: The judge has given D.A. Willis's office a deadline of next Tuesday to file a brief explaining how they think a trial for all 19 defendants starting on October 23rd could actually work. Joining me now are Christy Greenberg, former de- former deputy chief of the criminal division at the Southern District of New York, and Mimi Roca, former federal prosecutor and the current DA for Westchester County right here in New York State. Christy, Mimi, thank you for being here tonight. I am I, OK. I mean, this is really where the fact that I have no law degree comes shining through in glaring light. But 19 defendants, October 23rd is is this are we operating in the same universe as as the DA's office Is this even possible Mimi
3: Look, I think if the DA says it's possible, which she has uh-huh. uh, very affirmatively I think it is possible. Do I think it's going to happen? Do I think it's maybe the best idea even for the case? No. Um, I mean, the judge will decide that, but, um, you know, it, yes, they have to prove the conspiracy no matter how many defendants are in the case. They have to prove the enterprise. They have to prove, um, in, in essence, the same case. But having 19 lawyers to do cross-examinations, to make objections, that is what will make that size of a case much, totally much Totally unwieldy. unwieldy. And unwieldy. And I think this judge seems very common sense. And, you know, I think the DA is doing absolutely what she should be doing. She is, the government is always ready. The people are ready. The state of Georgia is ready. Um, And so she is ready. Would she do it if she had to? Absolutely. And I'm sure she'd do a very good job. Okay.
1: But just, I mean, and the estimate, the, the, our MNOS agrees, although I'm sure he would not Like the grease part of that. But Andrew Weissman tweeted today Fani Willis saying she will call 150 witnesses is really absurd. Over trying a case is never a good thing for the government and opens a door to the defense to score points and play games. 150 witnesses, no matter who's on trial, it does seem aggressive, does it not? It seems unwise
4: to say that you are going to present the exact same case no matter who the defendants are. If you only have two defendants who are a part of two very discrete schemes, You don't need to start proving up all of the other evidence with respect to 17 other defendants that the jurors are never going to meet. That's going to be confusing, and the jurors may start to resent the prosecutors for making this go on so long. I mean, she's estimating four months. The judge said, actually, that could take eight months. Again, you have to prove a pattern of racketeering. You have to prove there's an enterprise, but you don't necessarily need to put on the exact same case to do that when
1: you only have two defendants versus 19. Why is she doing that, then? Is that just because she wants these folks tried to get And if she does, what is a reasonable timeline for that, Mimi?
3: I think she's doing it again, because I think that is the position that a prosecutor who charges 19 people together must take. You must say that you're prepared to try them together. And yes, because she believes that they acted in concert. They acted together. And so it would be more efficient in in some ways, from her point of view, to do the case once Um, So
1: I I, 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 Sorry to interrupt you. I understand why she wants them to go together. I guess I I, I'm confused as to why she says, regardless of whether they're tried together, they're all going to get 150 witnesses at their trial.
3: Yeah, look, I think she's they're making arguments right now to the judge as to why he shouldn't break it up. And this is one of several arguments that were made. Um, I've charged 40 defendant cases. They were organized crime cases. I've never had more than four at a time go to trial. Um, either because most of them pled out, cooperated, or because the judge severed them. Um, it's not common, but I, I do get the sense here that this judge is going to not not have separate trials for everyone, but maybe break it up into some more manageable pieces. And then there will—or wait and see, though, right? How Who does plead out? Who does cooperate? I mean, it's very unlikely that all 19 will go to trial. They have a right to, and yeah. they might, but— In 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 experience, that's just unlikely to happen.
1: Well, right. I think the the broadest assumption here was that nineteen a bunch of them are going to flip. They're going to plead out, whatever. When does that part start happening? Because TikTok, it's September sixth. I don't even know what day it is. October twenty third is not that far away from from now, and that's the sort of expiration date we are theoretically working with. So, what is what is happening behind the scenes with some of these defendants?
4: It starts now. Okay. Uh, there is a scheduling order now in the case with uh, Powell and Chesbro, And if you want to be a witness in that case and get cooperation points for the fact that you are going to testify at that trial, getting in now would make sense and before any pretrial motions are filed. So you have to imagine at least some of these 19 defendants are, are having real conversations with their lawyers about whether or not they're going to cooperate.
1: There is another part of this that I think has gone like largely under-discussed, which is the, the the removal piece. Mark Meadows and other defendants are saying, take this out of state court, send it to federal court, right? That decision has not yet been made. There is likely to be an appeals process that could take some time. This is what Judge McAfee, I think we have the sound from him today, bringing up that very important point to the prosecutors. Let us take a listen.
2: So, if it's a four-month trial that starts in October, we're potentially sitting at a point where we've presented the entire state's case. Maybe even the jury has returned a verdict, but we can't enter that judgment of conviction until the 11th Circuit comes to a decision. Is that kind of the scenario where we're playing out here?
1: Help me understand this, Mimi. So if, there, if, if for example, Mark Meadows is still trying to appeal—let's say they say, you can't throw it out, it stays in sta- state court. And If he appeals that decision, it's working its way through the court system— Potentially at the same time that the trial is still happening. And if a verdict is returned in the trial, you cannot actually convict until the removal process is complete. That whole appeals process is complete. Is that right? Uh, that seems to be what the judge
3: is saying. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be right if if Meadows case was severed. Right. Because you could still sever his case. Right. And, and so um But he would have to do that ahead of time. And he seems not necessarily inclined to do that. I think he's kind of I think at some point he said something about double jeopardy and he's worried about a conviction, you know, at the state level. And then there's going to be a federal possible trial. There's also still the question of whether if if big if Meadows motion is successful, does that mean everybody's And the law is not clear, as you know, many people have said um, on whether. So that's going to have to be decided as well. Um, So, look, I I don't know. I mean, I I, I would be hesitant to predict how how this is going to play. I don't think anybody can. It's
1: terra incognito, legally speaking, in a certain way, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that is. I I, I do. When we talk about the federal part of this, Christy, I'm also wondering how this is factoring into whatever behind-the-scenes calculations Jack Smith is making, right? Because there's so much overlap between the Georgia case and his case. The timing for the Jack Smith case, March 6th of 2024, If this case goes to trial in Georgia this fall, I mean, you could have a a lot of overlapping witnesses testimony. How would it even work? And by the way, if it's a real clown scene down in terms of the witnesses and the, the defendants and their lawyers in Georgia, like what are the implications for a federal trial that covers much of the same ground?
4: So you have witnesses when they have federal exposure. They're going to be approaching that state trial with some trepidation, right? Who do what witnesses do they put on the stand? Do they present a defense? Do they testify Uh, all of the anything they say on the stand? Any witnesses they're putting forward could be used against them in a federal case. So they have to be careful when there is this kind of overlap in the conduct that's being looked at at the federal level and the state level.
1: I don't think he's happy about is he it does. Is this seen as a sneak preview for him? Is this a useful exercise or is this gumming up the works if you're Jack Smith, Jack Smith?
3: Look, to be honest, if I were a federal prosecutor in his shoes, I would probably not be happy with it. You'd rather just proceed with your case. You want to be the one to preview or premiere your witnesses. Um, You don't. Yes. And that those kinds of conflicts happen all the time. Sure. This is not unusual.
1: Well, Well, yeah, it's just wholly unusual in another way yes <laughs> 100 <Okay. 100%. laughs> percent christy greenberg and mimi roca thank you guys both for exploring this uncharted waters with me we have a lot more to come this evening including a potential avenue to get da Fonnie willis off this case entirely it is an idea some republicans in georgia are open to exploring but a bipartisan group of prosecutors is fighting back that's coming up next and later, new developments in one of the other criminal cases against former President Trump over his handling of classified documents. Oh, that old chestnut. It's back. Stay tuned.
2: Top Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.
1: So as we saw today, the RICO prosecution of Donald Trump and his 18 alleged accomplices is moving full steam ahead in Fulton County, Georgia. But the efforts to delay or even derail that prosecution are not just playing out inside the courtroom. Certain Georgia Republicans have their very own ideas about how to create chaos in this case. They want to oust the prosecutor to remove Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis from office. Now, earlier this year, the Republican-controlled legislature passed a law allowing a newly formed commission to investigate and remove any elected prosecutor in the state of Georgia. It is called the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission. Using it to go after D.A. Willis in in the middle of a very public and high-stakes case would be a step so radical that even Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, is warning against it. But the new commission that theoretically has the power to remove D.A. Willis is set to begin its work in just a few weeks, unless it is stopped by the courts. Four Georgia district attorneys have filed a lawsuit arguing the new law establishing this commission is unconstitutional and anti-democratic. One of them joins me now. Sherry Boston is the District Attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia, right next door to Fulton County. Madam District Attorney, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And there's a lot to talk about as far as the substance of this law and its decidedly anti-democratic bent. But just first for folks who have been worried about what is happening here with this commission and what may come in the month of October, can you talk to me a little bit about the makeup of the commission and how the process is supposed to work? Given the the novelty of all of this.
6: Well, Alex, I wish I could answer some of those questions, but those are just some of the issues that we've outlined in our lawsuit. There are so many unanswered questions on what the rules are and um, how these types of investigations and removals are supposed to happen. But what we do know is that the eight men, um, all men, have been appointed to this commission, seven white, one African-American, by um, Republican um, political officials, have decided that these eight men get to make a decision about the investigation and removal of prosecutors. And once removed, would be barred from running for office for another 10 years, really ripping Um, local decisions out of the hands of the voters.
1: Yeah. And I think that uh, we don't know what is going to happen with Fannie Willis in particular, but the very idea that there is this you know, external body that can effectively under, undermine the will of voters and the citizens of Georgia seems decidedly anti-democratic and very much fits in with a a, a suite of initiatives, if you will, that Republicans have taken up nationwide to undermine institutional integrity and, and, and the rule of law and democracy in general. Uh, to that end, when you talk about who is for this law and who is against it, I think it is notable that Governor Kemp, has said at least publicly that he does not want this law effectually bastardized to oust Fannie Willis from office. Is that meaningful?
6: Well, it was very meaningful when Governor Kemp made or made the statement that he did, stating that he has seen no evidence of any level um, of reason that, that D.A. Fonnie Willis is doing anything then other than what she was elected to do, which is follow the leads, investigate, present the case to the grand jury, and the grand jury made their decision. Um, and so I commend the governor for that. However, at the same time, the governor did say very clearly that he would allow this commission rather than a special session um, to review the actions of D.A. Fonnie Willis. And that is a problem and should be a concern for everyone, especially when that commission um, has power on October 1st. And we know that this trial is slated to begin with at least some defendants on October 23rd. So the idea that um, anybody can bring a complaint and try to thwart D.A. Willis from doing her job in the middle of a major prosecution should be troubling to everyone.
1: Yeah. And it is worth noting that many of the people that sit on this commission are former DAs themselves. We have not done. I'm sure you know who they are. We do not. Perhaps there is some hope that because they are DAs themselves, they will recognize the importance of prosecutorial independence here. Who can know? What is your expectation for the lawsuit? You are asking for an injunction while this case works its way through the courts. What's your expectation?
6: Absolutely. Well, we filed this lawsuit and we filed the injunction a few weeks ago because we absolutely believe that harm can come to a number of DAs before we've had an opportunity to let this lawsuit make its way through the courts. Um, We are sitting in Fulton County Superior Court. We expect a judge to hear the merits. But no matter what that decision is, that case will be appealed by the losing side, as it should be, to the Supreme Court of Georgia, in which they will um, be the final decision makers on the constitutionality of this commission. And so it would be um, difficult uh, for any DA to have to defend themselves in an unconstitutional commission before we've had a valid opportunity to have our legal issues addressed. And I believe that once those issues are looked at, um, we have some very meritorious claims here. And I'm hoping that because of that, you will see a preliminary injunction put in place so that there's no interference, not only with the prosecution that DA Willis has taken on, but no interference in any of the 50 DA offices is right now.
1: And I think that that is a point we can't lose sight of, which is this isn't just about Fannie Willis. This is about prosecutors doing their jobs and having that independence. Sherry Boston, District Attorney for DeKalb County, Georgia, many thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Still to come this evening, Moms for Liberty. This group did not even exist a couple of years ago. And now this group is not only fighting culture wars over education across the country, It is attracting the admiration of Republicans who want to lead the free world. Plus, there are new revelations in the criminal case against Donald Trump over the sensitive documents he kept down at his Florida beach club. That story is next. Nearly 13 months, 13, since the FBI searched Donald Trump's Florida Beach Club for classified documents. Today, we got new insight into what led up to that search. NBC News has confirmed that in May of last year, Trump was warned by one of his lawyers, Evan Corcoran, that the FBI might very well search Mar-a-Lago if Trump didn't comply with a grand jury subpoena requesting the return of those classified documents. ABC News was first to report on a warning that Mr. Corcoran gave to Mr. Trump which Corcoran documented via voice memos on his phone. According to those voice memos, which NBC News has not yet heard nor seen transcripts of, but through a source familiar has confirmed the existence of, Mr. Corcoran explained to Mr. Trump, if you don't comply with the grand jury subpoena, you could be held in contempt. And there is a prospect that they, as in the government, could go to a judge and get a search warrant and that they could arrive here. That is here, as in Mar-a-Lago. In other words, these recordings appear to show that Mr. Trump was very well aware that a search of Mar-a-Lago was likely, which was not at all evident from Trump's statements the week after that FBI search when he sort of whipped up anger and indignation at law enforcement on Truth Social. There is no way to justify the unannounced raid of Mar-a-Lago without notification or warning. An army of agents broke into Mar-a-Lago, went into the same storage area and ripped open the lock that they had asked to be installed. A surprise attack, politics, and all the while our country is going to hell. Remember when your lawyer told you that might happen? Anyway, also today, we finally got some insight as to why Trump's lawyers didn't take a tougher stance with their client. According to the recordings, Corcoran met with another lawyer who warned that Trump was just going to go ballistic if Corcoran pushed the former president to comply with that subpoena. In the end, Trump did not comply. And the rest is history. Joining me now is Mary McCord, former assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., and former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the DOJ. She is also, of course, a co-host of the invaluable MSNBC podcast prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary, thanks for helping me understand what's happening here. Um, These voice memos, the Trump campaign is saying, this is part of attorney client privilege. You have no right to this. Um, Is that fair? And how useful are these in the case that Jack Smith is making? Well, I think it's important
7: to remember that these voice memos are were the subject of a dispute that was litigated in the District of Columbia, the District Court for the District of Columbia, back when Evan Corcoran, Mr. Trump's lawyer, of course, uh, during some of the Mar-a-Lago incidents, the so one you were just re- referring to in the opening, when the uh, Jack Smith and the grand jury sought to subpoena Mr. Corcoran to testify, he asserted attorney-client privilege. Uh, not only over his testimony, but also over documents and things like that. The government took that matter to the chief judge of the district court in the District of Columbia and argued that the attorney-client privilege should be pierced because there was evidence to suggest that Mr. Trump was actually um perpetrating a fraud on his own attorney. He was actually trying to use his attorney to commit a crime. The District of Columbia judge agreed with that, and that is why Mr. Corcoran then did testify in front of the grand jury and did supply these voice memos, which uh, at least some of which were seen by the grand jury, because parts of these same voice memos appear in the indictment that was returned. So they're not new. We just have more Evidence or more um, accounting of of some of the details of those things at this time. Right? How the- important are they? That clearly, they are very significant. They show Mr. Trump lying to his attorney, and some of the new things we got today show that it was actually when his attorney, Mr. Corcoran, said, "If you don't comply with the subpoena." the government may get a search warrant. It was in response to that that Mr. Trump said things like, wouldn't it be better if we just said we didn't have anything? We know now that not only did he then spend two weeks, Mr. Trump, You know, directing his aides, Walt Nada and Carlos de Oliveira, to move a lot of boxes out of the basement storage unit and many fewer boxes back into that storage unit. We know now that maybe wasn't just to avoid Mr. Corcoran seeing all of the classified and being able to go through it and provide to the government the response to the subpoena but maybe was to secret those documents away so that if there was a search warrant, they wouldn't be
3: found.
1: Right. It almost establishes that he was acutely aware that a search warrant might be on the horizon and then did everything in his power to make sure certain documents were not found. Is it strange to you that Evan Corcoran, who took these voice— First of all, the, the fact that Evan Corcoran was making voice memos about his client behaving, at best, erratically, at worst— Unlawfully? Is that a is that a normal thing in terms of counsel? And secondly, by all the reporting we have, Evan Corcoran is still engaged as a legal advisor to Donald Trump. Is that bizarre?
7: Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the voice memos, it's 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 not unusual for a uh, an attorney to memorialize their contacts with their client. Right, they want to keep a record of the conversations they had with their client, any advice they gave to their client, how their client responded. That's important not only because you know they have this relationship; they want to make sure it's memorialized, just so that they're able to substantiate that they were doing what the client instructed them to do if there's ever a a dispute, but also, of course, to, you know, CYA, right, to protect himself uh, when what he was experiencing clearly there was indications of Mr. Trump trying to really solicit him to hide information from the government when Mr. Corcoran well knew, he's a former prosecutor himself, the government had subpoenaed these documents, they were entitled to them, and the result of noncompliance might be contempt or might be a search warrant. So I think keeping the voice memos is not particularly unusual. Um, I do think it is really unusual that Mr. Corcoran is still representing Mr. Trump. Now, not in the Mar-a-Lago matter, but apparently still in the January 6th related uh, indictment that was also brought by Jack Smith. This one brought in the D.C. District Court here in the District of Columbia. Now, in that particular case, it's, it's, it's a conflict or an apparent conflict that Mr. Trump can waive. So if he wants to have Evan Corcoran, knowing that Evan Corcoran is likely to be a witness against him in his trial in Mar-a-Lago, he can waive any, uh, you know, conflict and say, no, I still want him to represent me. Now, why does he want to do that? That's what kind of makes me concerned because is he trying to do that to try to somehow pressure Mr. Corcoran Ugh. not to give truthful testimony in Mar-a-Lago because he's paying Mr. Corcoran to represent him or his pack or somebody's paying Mr. Corcoran to represent him. And I believe Mr. Corcoran's got a lot of money from him. Now, all of that said, if Mr. Corcoran says something different in a trial in the Mar-a-Lago case than a what in those voice memos and those records and recordings, then he's going to get impeached with that and have to explain what the change is about.
1: <laughs> voice memos have never been so critical as now. Mary McCord, the great Mary McCord, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Still ahead, Hunter Biden is about to be indicted, but can a plea deal still be salvaged? His lawyer, Abby Lowell, joins me coming up. But first, Republican presidential candidates are thirsting for the endorsement of an organization that is being called an anti-government extremist group. We're going to have more on that next.
2: I think what we've seen across this country in recent years has awakened. The most powerful political force in this country, Mama Bears, and they're ready to roll.
1: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been trying to get the conservative mama bear in his corner, seemingly through an endorsement from a group known as Mobs for Liberty. Now, the group was founded in 2021 on the idea that parental freedom included, ex- included exposing children to COVID and banning books about race and gender. The group has successfully endorsed a number of school board candidates across the country, which in turn has had a profound effect on what children are learning and how they are learning it. But Moms for Liberty has yet to endorse a presidential candidate. The group says it has no plans to endorse a candidate right now. But that has not stopped presidential candidates from endorsing Moms for Liberty. When the Southern Poverty Law Center labeled the Moms group a hate and anti-government extremist group in June, Vivek Ramaswamy pledged his allegiance.
0: It's a sad state of affairs when a respectable organization like Moms for Liberty And by the way, I'm proud to be the first presidential candidate that signed their pledge is now designated a hate group. If they're a hate group, then so be it. Count me in.
1: Count me into that hate group. A few weeks later, an Indiana chapter of Moms for Liberty quoted Hitler on the front page of its inaugural newsletter. They wrote, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. The chapter later apologized. But even after public outrage over the Hitler quote and winning the designation of a hate group. Nearly every single presidential candidate traveled to Philadelphia for the Moms for Liberty annual summit this July. They cut through protesters and they join the main stage and fashion themselves presidential candidates for liberty.
0: I see that Moms for Liberty is coming under attack by the left, (laughs) attack by the corporate media, protest out here in the streets. Now you know how I feel everywhere I go. (laughs) Parental rights. You think you'd have parental rights? It's unbelievable what they do to your children. What we need to do, what you all are already doing, which is why I love you, which is why they will protest you, which is why they will vandalize our events, is that we are speaking the truth
1: without apology. Now all the ring kissing here can be explained by the fact that Moms for Liberty has repeatedly demonstrated its political power among a key Republican voting bloc, conservative mothers. Those mothers have been electrified by the group's school board takeovers and their censorship of books in school libraries and their more broad anti-woke education agenda. And man, the competition to harness that political power is fierce. This morning, Governor Ron DeSantis announced the appointment of Moms for Liberty co-founder Tina Deskovich to Florida's Commission on Ethics. An hour later, former Governor Nikki Haley, her campaign sent out a mass email promoting her interview with the other co-founder of Moms for Liberty, Tiffany Justice. What Tiffany and I are doing and fighting today is, no, the parents are in charge. The parents get to make these decisions. So I'm so grateful to Tiffany and Moms for Liberty for the fight that they're doing to bring this back to the parents. Because parents have one job, and that's to get this right for their kids. And we have to fight for them to make sure that they get that. You have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of your children. This is why so many moms love Nikki Haley, because she's standing up as a mom fighting for kids. And just a few hours ago, Nikki Haley appeared alongside Justice once again, this time hosting the Moms for Liberty Parents in Charge Town Hall in New Hampshire, where parents presumably were in charge. Despite all the sensorial and retrograde and highly questionable things on the agenda here, or actually maybe because of it, Republican candidates are tripping over themselves to win an endorsement they believe will yield votes. Moms for Liberty has had great success at the local level and the state level, and they are going to try and take it all the way to the White House. When we come back, news broke today that the Justice Department plans to indict Hunter Biden later this month. His attorney attorney joins me to explain what is going on coming up next. So we learned today that the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden plans to indict the president's son on a felony gun charge before the end of the month. In a new filing, prosecutors said they will seek to indict Biden for purchasing a gun while he was using drugs and then lying about that on a federal form. The filing also mentions a misdemeanor tax case that prosecutors brought against Biden earlier this year. Now, both of those cases were on track to be settled in a plea deal that fell apart in spectacular fashion this July after a judge questioned the agreement. In a court filing today, Biden's lawyers said their client has been following the conditions of that original plea agreement, but prosecutors have pushed back against that. They contend that the agreement is null, Because Hunter Biden chose not to plead guilty and the deal was never signed by the probation office. Joining me now is Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney. Mr. Lowell, thanks so much for being here and helping me understand how it is that you believe that you're pursuing an agreement, a plea agreement that remains valid. Uh, The prosecution does not seem to think the same thing. Can you explain to us what's going on in here and your logic?
0: Sure. This is pretty easy, I think, for people out in the real world to understand. If two parties make an agreement and sign the agreement and submit the agreement and in open court say they have an agreement, then they have an agreement. And more importantly, what has happened since that day, as we pointed out in our pleading, our client, Hunter, has been living up to his terms of that agreement. Now, to be clear, there were two different agreements, the plea agreement, which was not fulfilled, and this thing called the diversion agreement, which is important, based on the prosecutor's filing today about what they plan to do on a gun charge. That diversion agreement is where there was the clause that talked about what would happen and the parties agreed. And as to the people who are saying the probation officer didn't sign the agreement, well, it's a little disingenuous at the very least, because on July the 20th, the U.S. Attorney's Office wrote to the judge and the court, and said that the probation office had agreed to the terms of the agreement and they were implementing the conditions of probation that the agreement called for. In everybody else's life, when they sell a car, sell a house, employ somebody and they have a signed agreement, most people think it's an agreement.
1: Well, I guess, again, to the layman, right? Uh, the, if that is the case, then why did Merrick Garland allow David Weiss to become a special uh, special counsel if, if this was I effectively think a teams, settled matter?
0: I those things are two different things. Mm -hmm. Because if it was true, this is a different part, that any part of the investigation, quote, was ongoing, which is what the U.S. attorney's office said on July 26th, then the attorney general who said I'm not going to interfere would say, "Okay, if this is what you say you need, I'm going to do it. But that doesn't have much to do with what could be brought under that agreement should there be any further investigation. Look, as to the special counsel designation, I've said this before, and I think people get it now. If the attorney general for months and months and months said that David Weiss had all the power and all the authority he needed to bring any case anywhere, anytime he wanted, and if David Weiss, the U.S. attorney, said that, then what happened when the attorney general changed his name's title was a change in title, not the change of his power. And never forget that after five years of a painstaking investigation, that office felt that the right conclusion in this case was the filing of two late filing tax charge misdemeanors and a diversion agreement for the gun charge. And so if they change their mind now, which they say in court they are going to do, then the only co- conclusion is that the facts haven't changed. The law, if it has changed, it's only changed to make their case less strong. It has to have been the political influence, the improper political interference. I wanna come back to that one point though, so people do understand. They know everything there is to know about the gun possession. Hunter had a gun for 11 days. It was never loaded. It was never used. There has never been a standalone gun charge like this brought by this office ever, and should they not be? They decided that it made sense to do a diversion because of Hunter's condition at the time, and now they're talking about changing that. What's changed? Not the facts. And if people have paid attention, the only law that's changed has been a court of appeals in the federal system that has called that statute unconstitutional. So then what changed? Not the facts, not the law, but we have seen over the last six weeks, the politics have certainly influenced the outcome.
1: If it is, in fact, the politics that are really dictating this, do you think that it's possible to resolve this without going to trial?
0: I mean, look, I've been doing this for as long as you know anybody, I think. It's possible— But if the U.S. attorney, who was correct today to say the following, the statute and calls for a speedy trial calculation is 30 days, it is true that in 30 days something has to happen. Well, in that period of time, something could happen, which would be, let's get back to what you thought was the right result after five years of investigation by an independent Republican U.S. attorney who thought the only valid charge was a failure to file on a timely basis like millions and millions of people do, and a diverted gun charge because nobody gets charged for a standalone gun case. That being the case, maybe that's what could happen between now and sometime in the future. Do I hold out hope for it? I don't know. I do know what they said in court today, but they know what I said in court today, too.
1: I just wonder if the reality of what how the Supreme Court has ruled on gun rights recently will also have uh, will also factor into their calculations. Right. I mean, the Supreme Court has expanded the rights of gun ownership, including for people who have been found to be abusing drugs, <laughs> potentially. So all of that could factor into the ultimate outcome in this. And do you think that that will have a, a cooling effect for these prosecutors?
0: Um, it depends. As much as the facts and the law should cool these prosecutors, it looks like the heat that's put on by the Republican congressmen who want to interfere in the normal course of what the Justice Department does puts up the heat. But if they are going to focus on the facts and they are going to focus on the law, you know what's changed since July 26th? The law changed. And this statute that they cited to the court today has been found by a court of appeals to be unconstitutional. Where else? other than a case in which they are cowering from the political pressure, would somebody be charged with something that's unconstitutional?
1: Abby Lowell, thank you so much for your time tonight, sir. Really,
5: really clarifying. That is our show for this evening.